1: In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 13 through chapter 14, verse
0: 11. Jeremiah 15, 51. Again, 50 opens up. The word of the Lord spoke against Babylon and against the land of Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet. Declare among the nations and so on. And it mentions her idols and so forth. For out of the north there cometh up a nation against her. Oh, that's interesting. From the north, who's north of Babylon? Well, when we get home, look at a globe. It's the Soviet Union, and and so forth. And um, they're going to Israel will be not only regathered but in belief because the covenant is good, and that's a whole other insight. But get to verse eight. To flee out of the midst of Babylon. Go forth out of the land of the Chaldeans. And be as he goats before the flocks and so forth. For lo I raise up and cause to come up against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the north country, and they shall set themselves in array against her. And on it goes. Get down to verse thirteen. Because of the wrath of the Lord shall not it shall not be inhabited. There is that theme again. And the walls are thrown down, verse fifteen. That has not happened. Yes, they eroded historically, but this, this kind of destruction has never occurred. And on it goes. And we get to 19. We talk about the Golan Heights. So I won't get to that right here. Verse 25, against the land of the Chaldeans. It's not allegorical. It's literal. Verse 34 is kind of fun. Speaking of Israel, it says the Redeemer is strong. We happen to know his name. Israel doesn't yet, but they'll learn. You're down to ch- verse 39, the wild beasts of the desert and so forth. And it shall no more be inhabited forever. Neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. That has never happened. As God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, there's that phrase again in Jeremiah, and their neighboring cities, said the Lord, so shall no man abide there, neither shall any son of man dwell in her. And behold, a people shall come from the north. Notice verse 41. Behold, a people shall come from the north, and a great nation, and many kings shall be raised up from the borders of the earth. Now many people got overly excited about these passages during the Hundred Hour War, in the recent Persian Gulf crisis. And on the one hand, the good news is they began to recognize that literal Babylon was happening so that was good and yet and certainly there were many kings and people came from the borders of the earth we were there etc but did this happen as described here no it didn't don't try to twist it that it did no the destruction that's talking about here is not the destruction that happened to, and by the way don't confuse Iraq with Babylon don't confuse Iraq with Assyria you say well gee that's the same geography no it isn't you take the Babylon, you take the Babylon Empire Take the Assyrian Empire, take the Babylon Empire, take the Persian Empire, and lay out the empires, and the borders are not that different. So you're talking empires, not just the city, if you follow me. So don't be confused by that. Just watch the paper, and it'll all unfold. When you get to chapter 51, there's a few other things. We start seeing other imagery here. Babylon hath been a golden cup in the Lord's hand. That idiom is going to be in in Revelation 17 18. Nations have drunk her wine. Babylon is suddenly fallen and destroyed. We're going to see it in Revelation. Babylon is fallen, fallen, and so forth. Verse eleven is interesting. It ends with the Lord and the vengeance of His temple. That's interesting. Let's pop over to Revelation seventeen and eighteen. In the idioms and the symbols and the graphs and the and, and what have you of Revelation, we encounter a strange thing called mystery Babylon in chapter seventeen and eighteen. Mystery Babylon is a great harlot. Now, Babylon, the city of Babylon is the something else you should just be aware of as background. The city of Babylon is the origin of most of what we consider in the world. Numbers, accounting, the signs of the zodiac, all, almost every place you turn, the more you know about Babylon, the more you'll be amazed at how much we confront in our world system. How many minutes in an hour? Anyone? Sixty. Good for you. Okay. How many, how many seconds in a minute? How many hours in a day? How many days in a year? 360, actually the original ones, the original year before 701 B.C. Now, the question is that all came from Babylon. How many degrees in a circle? 360. Babylon, Babylon, Babylon. All that started in Babylon. More importantly, what about things like the Easter Bunny? The goddess of Babylon was Ishtar. The fertility symbol was the egg. Another fertility symbol, of course, are rabbits because they multiply so quickly, and those idioms get commingled in what we call Easter. Ever wonder why an Easter Bunny lays eggs? Babylon. It's a, it's a strange convolution of those ancient thoughts, ideas, conceptions. The idea of the Christmas tree. Babylon. Nothing to do with Christianity. The Babylonians worshipped the sun god. Nimrod had a wife by the Semiramis, and they promoted the, the myth that their son, Tammuz, was supernaturally born. Tammuz was associated with the sun god. By the way, first letter of his name was a T, which in Babylon and Chaldean looks like a cross, incidentally. The point is, is that uh, he was associated with the sun god, and the sun god was worshipped about the time of the winter solstice. As the days got shorter and shorter, he was thought to have died, and as the days started to get longer, he was thought to have been reborn. And they celebrated the death and rebirth of the sun god by taking a log, burning it in the fireplace. The Chaldean name for infant is Yule. And the, um, <laughs> I sure hope not, Yeah. <laughs> And what they did is they burned a log in the fireplace that night, and the next morning they replaced it with a trimmed tree. And that celebrated the death and rebirth of Tammuz. And that, that legend was the route to a celebration in the Babylonian system. When the Babylonians get conquered by the Persians, that system moves to Pergamos. That's why Jesus Christ his letter to, letter to Pergamus, could speak of Pergamos as where Satan's seed is. When the Romans conquer, the Greeks conquer, and then Romans conquer the Greeks, this whole system and the priesthood associated with it moves to Rome. And most of what we know about pagan Rome has its origin in Babylon. You substitute the Chaldean names with Latin names, and you've got uh, Ishtar becoming Aphrodite or Astarte, and you've got all these ch- name changes, but the same, same thoughts, same concepts, and they celebrated the, the Tammuz ritual in Saturnalia. A couple of centuries later... Constantine makes Christianity the official religion, a very shrewd political maneuver for lots of reasons. The population, anxious to comply with the emperor, anxious to play Christian. But obviously they're used to celebrating certain things, so they rename it, adapt their cultural traditions to the new regime. And so Saturnalia becomes, of course, what we know as Christmas. Not quite on the winter solstice. They missed it by a couple of days. Not December 22nd. It's actually December 25th, but close. And uh, on it goes. We know Christ was not born in December. Couldn't be. He had to be, be born when Judea was passable. Jesus says, pray that your flight not, be not in winter. Judea is not passable in the winter. It snows there, believe it or not. And you got pictures. By the way, I've seen pictures of Jerusalem under snowfall. It's kind of interesting. But not very often, but it does happen. Point is, though, that uh, Jesus, the shepherds were uh, in open field. And they don't do that after October. So Jesus Christ was born probably on Rosh Hashanah. That's a whole other thing. Anyway, getting back to Babylon. Babylon is the mother of all false religion. These ancient weird ideas are now packaged with new popularity under the label New Age. They call it channelers. Babylon called it mediums, mystics, spiritists, and on, onward. Verse uh, 3 in Revelation 17 So he carried me away in the spirit in the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast. The woman is not the beast, she sits on the beast. Don't confuse the woman with the beast. Full of names and blasphemy and having seven heads and ten horns, the woman was arrayed with in purple and scarlet color and bedecked with gold and precious stones and pearls and having a golden cup in her hand. There's that golden cup from Jeremiah, by the way. Full of abominations and filthiness and fornication. And here's her identity. Verse 5. And upon her head was na- a name written, Mystery Babylon, the great mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. Hey, Babylon wasn't drunk with the blood of the saints. So what's going on here? This is something broader, something bigger than literal past Babylon. See, a woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Oh, really? Sounds like we're mixing some metaphors here, doesn't it? And when I saw her, I wondered with great wonder. Okay? Why would John wonder? If John thought mystery Babylon was simply Rome, he wouldn't be puzzled. He'd understand it completely. He's puzzled. He's puzzled. Now, don't misunderstand me. As you study this carefully, you will find an amazing link between much of this and idol worship in many denominations, not just the Catholics that get picked on so badly by expositors, Book of Revelation. But indeed, much of the traditions in the Catholic Church have the roots in Babylon, not the, the, the Scripture. And it goes on to talk about this. But the point I'd like to get across is not to hammer the Catholics to get your horizons broader than just the papacy. It's not that simple, my friends. It will exhaust our time to try to analyze this whole passage. But if you do this properly, and I commend to you a study of the book of Revelation, particularly two chapters, to, to really get into this. And if some of you are Catholic and troubled by this, let me give you some refuge. In the seven letters of seven churches, of course, Jesus Christ lays out a number of things, one of which is all of church history. And the fourth letter is the letter of the Church of Thyatira, which clearly can be linked to the papacy. But if the Protestants are giving you a hard time, if the Thyatira is the papacy, then Sardis is the Reformation. And the Sardis is one of the two letters of the seven that has no good said about it. So if you Catholics or back, Catholic background want to fend off some of your Protestant critics, give them a lesson in the, in the Church of Sardis, and that will set their clock for a while. But the truth of the matter is, Babylon, Mystery Babylon, the harlot, is more than just the literal city of Babylon, the pride of the Chaldeans' excellency. Somehow, there's something, what, what Mystery Babylon involves is the whole religious tradition of the earth mingled together. It may have overtones of the papacy, it overtones of the New Age, and so forth. We know from Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse four, that the son of perdition, the man of sin, will exalt himself above all that is called God, and that's not just the Pope; it's Islam, it's the New Age, it's every, all this. He's going to exalt himself above all that is called God or His worship. You and I don't have the capacity to imagine that, but it's coming, and it may even have extraterrestrial overtones. Who knows? Question then is, okay, Chuck, gee, I, I, I'm, I'm getting a little overwhelmed. Uh, uh, we've got this chapter 17, 18, and that's a heavy... St- we, could, we could easily spend several hours just on those two chapters. But as I do, what you come up with is a commingling of, gee, I've got clearly a link to Isaiah 13 and 14 and Jeremiah fifteen fifty one. I understand that. I'm, I've got that clear. And yet I'm confused because I've got something that's not just Chaldean here. I've got something that's global. How do I reconcile those? Let me give you a possibility. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 5. This will have the benefit because it will help you find a book you may not have looked at before, Zechariah. If nothing else, it will sell tabs at the bookstore. Zechariah chapter 5. And Zechariah is full of incredible little tidbits. Some of these prophets have big, huge, sweeping visions, and some of these guys have these... uh, Well, Zechariah is actually some of both. But in any case, chapter 5, he's got a couple of things. And and, uh, again, in the interest of time, I'll take just the second issue. It starts at verse 5. A strange little vision that Zechariah records for us. Much overlooked by most commentators. Zechariah chapter 5, verse 5. Zechariah says, The angel who talked with me went forth and said unto me, Lift up now thine eyes and see what is this that goeth forth. It's interesting that lift up thine eyes, phrase. It's an interesting study in its own right. Every major event in Abram's life was was preambled by that phrase. So some of these things are like little signposts and triggers to those of you that are really the you know careful students of the scripture, but we'll just move on and get the gist of it. Verse six. And as and Zechariah says, And I said, What is it? And he said, This is an ephah that goeth forth. And he said, moreover, this is the resemblance throughout all the earth. Now, what on earth is an ephah? You and I don't encounter an ephah every other day. It was the largest dry commercial measure. I think it's seven bushels, if I recall. In any case, verse 7, And behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead. Now, a talent was a unit of weight. The ephah was the largest volume measure in the commercial practice. The talent was the heaviest weight measure in commercial practice, approximately 97 pounds. This is a talent of lead. Behold, there was lifted up a town of lead. So the first overtone of this is commercialism. We've got the largest commercial dry measure and the largest weight measure used as a lid or a seal. What are they sealing in this big jar? Verse 7, Behold, there was lifted up a town of lead and this is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephah. And he said, this is wickedness. And he cast it into the midst of the ephah and he cast the weight of the lead upon the mouth of it. Kind of a strange vision. It's a vision, of course. It's just an idiom we're dealing in here. But we've got a large ephah We've got a woman trapped inside, sealed in because the lid's put on it. Now, who is this woman? It says so in verse 8. This is wickedness. My conjecture, my suggestion for your consideration is I believe that this woman is the harlot of Revelation 17 and 18. Not only because she's labeled this way, but for some other reasons as we'll develop as we go. Zechariah continues in verse 9, Then lifted I up mine eyes, and looked, and behold, there came out two women. These are different women now. Two women. And the and the wind was in their wings. For they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the ephah between earth and heaven. Well, it was obviously symbolic. It's a vision, but okay. You remember now, Zechariah is a priest. He's a Jew. This is in the Old Testament. Part of your perception here, you've got to sort of think like a rabbi. A stork is an unclean bird. In the lists in Deuteronomy, a stork is unclean. Ceremonially, doesn't mean something wrong with it, just ceremonially unclean in the ecclesiastical sense. So these two women are not like angels' wings. They have wings like a stork. So This would, to the Jewish mind, create a sinister coloration of the whole thing. You follow me? Okay, they had wings like his wings of a stork. They lifted up the ephah between earth and heaven. Verse 10, Then said I to the angel who talked with me, Where do these bear the ephah? So here's the woman trapped inside this commercial measure with a commercial lid on top of it, being carried by unclean messengers. Somewhere. It's between heaven and earth, which gives it a more than a tangible, it's, you know, it's allegorical in some way. Verse 11, and he said unto me, to build for it a house in the land of Shinar, and it shall be established and set there upon its own base. Now, what's the land of Shinar? The word Shinar appears seven times in the Bible. It's a synonym of Babylon. Shinar is the general area that Babylon sits in. In our parlance, we'd consider if Babylon's the city, Shinar's the county or something. You follow me? The plain of Shinar is the general location. Of, in other words, this strange, goings-on, is returning something back to its original base. Where? On the Euphrates River in Shinar. Now, it's because of this rather cryptic but provocative vision that it suggests the following resolution to the issue of what is Babylon all about. Babylon, literal Babylon, is being rebuilt as we speak in Iraq. Iraq. It is not a target during the 100-hour war because it's not a military target. Some ceremonial buildings. And I haven't kept track lately. I don't have any special G2, but I assume that they will, when he can, continue rebuilding. If not Saddam Hussein, then his successor. Okay? When Babylon is destroyed, as described in Isaiah 13 and 14 and Jeremiah 1551. It is a major world center. It's not just a little berg on the Euphrates. And Revelation makes it the climax of God's judgment upon the earth. Poetically, it makes sense because all that God hates started there. All false religion, all false worship, Babylon, it migrates to become the world system. How interesting it is, apparently the Bible describes it Evolving back to its location. The city of Babylon apparently is going to reemerge not just as a provocative city in Iraq, but a major world center. How can that be? Take a compass, put the point of it on the point 62 miles south of Baghdad where Babylon sits, and draw a circle of 500 or 1,000 miles, and you get most of the world's oil reserves. Can it emerge as an economic center? You bet. Can it emerge as a major religious center? Boy, make the world religion new age and see what happens. Okay, and, and so forth. And the church, I believe, for lots of reasons is out of here, so that really opens the door. The hinderer will be taken out of the way. I'm going to leave you then with the assignment to read Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah 15:51. And at Revelation 17 18, I realize we touched it lightly and went through a little bit of it. And obviously there's an enormous, uh, a a lot more that you get into. Those of you that might want to track down a copy of The Rise of Babylon, and The Persian Gulf Crisis, the bookstore has it for those of you that want to chase that down, which has all these calculations and strange, bizarre conjectures of Chuck Missler. You can chase that on your own. But let me shift gears a little bit because we still have a few more minutes and I want to uh, change the subject sort of. What do you do about all this? What do you do about all this? You know, we sit here and we have some fun and we get into the Scripture and that's always fun. If you get into the Scripture, it's always a treasure. God always has a surprise for you and it's exciting. But what do you do about it? Well, for one thing, it's my suggestion, strongly, that you learn your Bible. I don't know what the future holds. I know who holds the future. Big difference. Amen is right. You betcha. Now, So, first of all, over the next few months and few years, do your homework. Find out what an Arab is. If you find that out, write it down. It's a moving target. It's not a son of Ishmael. The proudest Arabs are the son of the third wife of Abraham, Keturah. It's not genealogical. It's not territorial. What most, what, what the press means when they speak of Arabs is not Arabs at all. They include Turkey and North Africa and a lot of other things. Those aren't Arabs. They're Muslims. They're united by only one thing. their can combined hate for Israel. That's supernatural for lots of reasons. We've studied that. Point is, though, you won't really understand what's going to unfold in the next in the next number of months unless you really know your Bible. So, first of all, this is the time. Do your homework. Find out what the Bible says. And I mean really, not because I said so. I hope not. Do your I am hope my main motive is to get you stimulated enough to do your own digging. But what you will find out, the Bible lays out some very interesting things to happen just before God wraps up his dramatic final curtain on planet Earth. He says a super state is going to emerge in Europe. It's happening before our very eyes. And don't equate Europe with Western Europe. The Roman Empire was east and west. Notice what's happening in the Eastern Bloc. You talk about realignments, that's fascinating. Does it take a long time? How long did it take for the Berlin Wall to come down? Boy, that's when, when it moves, it moves quickly. In spurts, like labor pains. That's kind of interesting. Bible says Europe will emerge as a super state. It's got three times the population of the United States. It's happening as we speak. And that's a whole other study for some evening. Bible says that the Soviet Union is going to be the major source of arms to an Arab bloc to invade Israel. Ezekiel details it. It's ready to happen as we speak. Bible says that God is going to regather Israel, as Isaiah said in chapter 11, the second time. We're watching it happen the second time, the time that God talks about, as we speak. The Bible says that they're going to come from the Soviet Union and from Ethiopia, specifically. And as we speak, that's happening in such at such a rate that Israel can hardly absorb them, as we speak. The Bible, God describes what he's uh, doing in advance. Amos 3.7 says, he will do nothing but that which he's revealed to his servants the prophets. It's all there if we look for it. Okay, there's Europe, there's the Soviet Union, there's Israel. The Bible says at the time of the end, there's going to be a temple built. And we've hammered that one home. It's happening as we speak. They're training the priests, they're building the implements, they haven't done the brick and mortar yet, but they're setting the groundwork. So it's it's unfolding. The Bible says that at the end time, the city of Babylon is going to reemerge on the world scene to be a major power to be destroyed by God himself. And for centuries, Bible scholars of all persuasions have generally, not always, been a few exceptions, but in general have seen this as allegorical. Because they presume that the destruction of Babylon, described by Isaiah and Jeremiah, happened in 539 B.C. Not if you read it carefully. Now, if, you're, if, you're, if you don't take the Bible seriously and you symbolize all this stuff, you'll miss it. As I've often said, if you torture the passages long enough, they'll confess But if you just read it the way Daniel... When Daniel read Jeremiah, he took it literally. Daniel, Jeremiah said 70 years. Daniel knew it was 70 years to the day. says so. And what he prays. And so forth. Every time someone reads the Bible in the Bible, he always takes it literally. So why don't we just read it and take it literally? I don't. I'm not badgering figures of speech, of course. But I'm saying, take it for what it says. Babylon's going to be rebuilt and be a major world power. And we look over our shoulder and discover that for the last 19 years, unnoticed by our press, it's been happening. A few little articles in our press figure it's just a tourist attraction or something. (laughs) Let's see. Let's just watch and see. But the real thing I want to drive home is what are you and I going to do about it? One of the things I suggest is you learn your Bible. Learn your Bible. Well, gee, I read it every day devotionally. Praise God. That's great, but that's a different thing. You need to read it every day to feed your soul, to give God an opportunity to speak to you on the specific issues in your life. And he will. Supernaturally, through the scripture. That's the other half duplex of the communication channel. You pray to him and he'll speak to you. And generally, not always, generally he speaks to you through his word. That's devotional reading. I'm all for that. I'm talking about something else. Make the Bible your hobby. I put that in quotes. Attack it with the intensity that you attack your cameras, your model airplanes, your hunting, fishing. You know, Everybody has hobbies. Make the Bible your hobby. Dig into it. Go to a bookstore and pick up a commentary at some book you've always wanted to dig into. Get some help. Find out what a, if you don't have a concordance. Go get a Strong's or a Young's, whichever you prefer, and get to know how to use it. It's easy. It's fun. It opens up the it allows you to find things you can only half remember. Boy, is that useful? If you don't have a good Bible dictionary. Get either a one or one of the five volumes that they're 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 not expensive. Instead of going to dinner tonight and blowing twenty bucks, go get a book. Probably, and, and, I, and I personally don't go to discount houses. I do for some things, not, not Christian books. I have not met a Christian bookstore owner that's rich. I go where there's inventory, where you can select. That's what I like by the chapel store. Commentaries don't turn over. The other little popular books do. That's where they make their margin. You know, most bookstores make their margin. I don't traffic in those particularly. But I love commentaries. But it takes a store with real commitment to carry an inventory. I go where the inventory is. And heaven forbid I even pay retail price. That's what my rabbi's friends tell me. That's what a Gentile is. Somebody has to pay retail. (laughs) Study the scripture. Learn your Bible. And I mean really attack it. Now, it's a different kind of reading than just reading. You should do that too. That's part of your, your feeding yourself. But I'm suggesting that you intensely find out. Get through Daniel. Understand Daniel 9, the 70 weeks. Understand Daniel 2 and 7 so that you can understand what's going on in Europe today and so forth. And the very fact that you're here tonight going through Isaiah is, is, is obviously a step in the right direction.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources visit the Apple or Android app store, or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.